Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel with Elias Randall. So, Elias, here's my question for you to start the show off. Okay. When did you close your pool? Have you closed it yet? No. How late do you keep it open? Uh, I keep the pool open until it's consistently like freezing temperatures overnight. So, at this point in the year, I start using my pool like a cold tub. So, so wait a minute. I'm the only person that uses it in the house. Do you have a heat? You don't have a heater in it, right? Nope. So I closed mine last week. Recovery. It's how I recover. Yeah, I closed mine last week, but we keep ours at like 91 degrees. And we have some friends who got a pool and they're going to keep it open for like as long as they can. I'm like, rookie mistake. There's no days left. I've had the pool for like four years now. No. She, oh my gosh. I can't believe how old I'm getting. I've actually had it for seven years. It'd be seven years, six years, six years this year. But you know, it's like the trying to figure out when you're actually going to use it. You don't want to miss like the nice weekend. Those are gone. Yeah. Those are gone. The ni- yeah. The nice, even if it's heated, no one's going to get in a pool and then get outside when it's mid fifties. No. So we, we figured out the optimal time to close the pool is the first week of October. So it just happened to be at the end of the week. And the optimal time to open it is the last week of April. Because usually you don't get those 80 degree days. Like my family, we're not going in the pool if it's under 70 ever. It doesn't really matter how warm it is. But we figured out is you actually want to open it like seven to 10 days earlier in the spring because it takes about that amount of time Mm -hmm. to get your water right. And my wife was like, well, I think the second year we had it, she's like, let's open it May 15th. We're not going to use it before then. Well, it wasn't ready until like Memorial Day weekend. Then she was mad and all over me about the water. I'm like, all right, last week of April. So I just was curious yeah. when you open and close. That's cause open, um, for, I do first week of May for opening, but how, for the same reason. Do you drain your pool though? Only just three or four inches below the intake. The skimmer, okay. So level. you leave it in there to keep the integrity just like we do. Yeah, yeah, it's got to stay in there for the liner. So yeah, in the, you know, when we get to January, February and it's, negative 10 every day eventually it's just a huge block of ice out there yeah this is the best september for pool weather ever yeah like this 80s was, and 90s it yeah. was phenomenal but, but it, it's fall now it cool it'd be odd for it'd be odd to have a pool day now we, it's cooled off well you know what it's funny like we we have like guidelines and theories that we utilize for our pool, but it's kind of the same thing people face as they're going into the distribution phase of life. And I think today what we want to talk about is some of the alternatives to the 4% rule. And if you don't know what the 4% rule is, it's really a rule that that was developed years ago and says, hey, your safe withdrawal rate's around 4%. But what we want to do is look at some of the options to that because we feel that's just a very blanket arbitrary rule that truth be told is like 30 years old it is and it's not um i think it's a decent rule of thumb i mean i think that can get you pointed in the right direction but it's certainly not uh you know it's not specific to anybody it's not if your withdrawal rates higher for a certain amount of years is that okay like it doesn't factor in what i believe to be the, all the realities of retiring so let me let's back it's up a, it's a decent way it's a decent way to think about withdrawals i think what we should do is back up and provide a little bit of info about how this rule came to be about 
and some different background on it. So people understand what this is versus just hearing you can take 4%. The rules actually, or the theory, I'm not even going to call it a rule because rules means you're supposed to do it. This is a theory that was um, developed in 1994 by a planner named William Bengen. And he published an article that really shocked the retirement community that said, if we use average returns with inflation retirement, you can potentially have a 30 year retirement where you take 4% out and have a high probability that you don't run out of money. And the 4% rule was born out of this article and everybody said, well, 4% is a number that you can take out. It's been debated by financial advisors for a long time. I'll say the last 20 years, the 4% rule has been challenging because think about where interest rates were in 1994 when this was actually developed. Much higher. More similar today in today's today. environment than yes. they were the last 20 years. Correct. And part of making this 4% theory work was that you know, you're, you're pulling out of the investments, but if you have a fixed income portfolio and let's say you have a 70% stock portfolio, 30% bond or 60, 40, if you have a 60, 40 portfolio, 40% of your money based upon this theory is probably earning north of 5% cash rates and bond rates, early nineties, north of 5%. So you get 3% right out of the gate. Well, if your other 60% is the stock stock market of some type, so 60%, if the average dividend is 2%, that's 1.2. So you get about 4% that's coming from interest and dividends, which means technically you don't have to sell an equity position when the market's down and lock in a loss. I like that idea. Okay. Well, in 2010, if you retired in 2010, how much were you getting on your cash? Zero. Yeah, nothing, half a percent. So now I you're just know. getting the dividend yield, 1.2%. So does the theory actually hold water when rates are low? And that's yet to be determined because we don't have enough history of people taking 4%. It's only been 13 years. This theory is based upon 30 years. So what we want to do is talk about some of the other ways that people can put together a distribution strategy that we feel is much more let's call it sustainable and quantifiable. And a couple of ways we do that is really what are the alternatives, Elias, to the 4% rule and which ones are actually viable and which ones do we like best? So some of the, uh, you know, some of the ones worth considering that we will talk about today, I think one initial idea, and this one's more and more popular, but the idea or again, it's a theory of spending guardrails, kind of defining the lower level of what your spending should be and also defining what maybe the high limit or threshold of your spending should be. And I think, you know, I don't know that there's any one way that just works, but I think understanding the different theories and then applying those to situations is probably more prudent. So here's what I like about kind of the spending guardrail conversation. And it's, it is something, it's an exercise we do solving a situation for maximum spending and kind of some of the coaching or the talk talking points for me are, okay, we've defined your lifestyle. Okay. That's our baseline spending. Can we make that work? Yes or no? Okay. Let's assume we can. So the answer is yes. 
Well, what about when things come up? Like I want to go on vacation. I want to buy a new vehicle. I want to buy a boat. I want to get a second house at a lake somewhere. Well, if we start to define what the maximum spending is or that upper limit, then we there's kind of a buffer there that can help guide some decisions. Um, you know, there's also just the exercise of taking a chunk out of a portfolio to say whether that works or not and solving that scenario. But I think kind of the the idea of this is what I need, this is what I could spend, it at least gets people pointed in the right direction of, let's say every year you know your upper limit is $20,000 annually higher than what you're actually spending. Well, if you don't hit that upper limit for two or three years, you can kind of through easy math, think, okay, I probably got like 40 to 60,000 here. I could spend at a chunk. There's more to it than that, but it can at least get you, um, at least get you down the right path towards doing something that you want to do, but also is not going to negatively impact your situation. So one of the things I always think about when you're coming up with a and we're calling these spending or, you know, a spending rule. These are really distribution strategies. Let's be really clear about what this is. One of the things I think when you're developing a distribution strategy, it needs to be relatively easy to execute. So part of the reason the 4% rule probably gained popularity. It's really easy. Yep. Take your account balance times 4%. And the problem with one of the problems with the 4% rule is if your account balance goes down, 30%. So did your income. It's not 4% anymore. It's not four, well, it's still 4%, but it's 4% of a smaller number. So there's another. Well, right. Or it's going to reflect a higher distribution rate in that right. year. Yeah. Right. So another thing, another rule that's out there, I actually never heard of this rule. And I think the reason why is because I don't think for any or for most practical application for individuals, this is really a great rule or alternative, but it's called the Yale spending rule. And this is what they use for their endowment. I'm actually not going to talk about it too much, but it's a combination of a constant dollar approach, which is, Hey, we're going to take 70% of the, the 70% of the distributions we took last year. So if we took 10,000, we're going to take 7,000 in constant dollar. And the other 30% is an average of the last three years. It already sounds complicated, right? It's not going to work for people. But what to know is it's a balance of a constant dollar approach, which means we're taking the same amount. And the 4% rule is really what it is. The reason we haven't heard of it, the only people who do it are the MIT professionals that actually develop this. Because yeah, it's I've not never practical. Had, I've these other strategies I've had questions on, but when I read through the Yale spending rule, that was my first thought. I've never had anyone ask me about the Yale spending rule. The reason concept. I think the it reason makes I, sense when you really think about it, but well, it does because you're it's, it's complicated. It's complicated, but I think the great great thing to bring to light is there's multiple ways to do this. If you're a highly numbers oriented person, maybe this appeals to you, but for the vast general public, they're going to look at this and say, this is way too complicated for me to manage. Although it's probably not really that complicated. It's, you know, 70% of what you took last year. And then you take your allocation. So if you have 30% bond allocation, it's the average over the last three years. It's not that hard, but it's more than most people are actually going to do. 
The next one, though, I'm going to let you talk about the next one. But I think this next one resonates with lots of people. And it's, you know, I'll introduce it, but it's the dividend spending rule. And, and I think this is a really easy one to execute as well. If you, if you have a really well, I don't know, uh, thought out dividend strategy. It is. And, you know, you can also include uh, interest in this too, right? Dividend and interest spending rule, which would mean the simplest way to understand it is you're not touching any of what you would consider your principal balance. So for ease of conversation, I retire today with a million dollars. I implement a strategy where all dividends and all interest paid is going to be what I take out um, of the cash sweep account on a weekly or monthly basis. And I think the, and this is something a lot of people ask about, which the simplicity of it lends to that. And then also it's just easier to understand that you would take your dividends and take your interest payments. Cause what do you do when you're saving? You reinvest those, right? You buy more shares with those. Well, that's a, that's kind of a mentality shift. When you transition into retirement, you're going to start taking money out. If you're taking money out, there's really no reason to reinvest your dividends or reinvest your interest payments. That should be what you're living on. And if that's if that's what you can make work, the nice thing is the fluctuation of that balance is not going to really matter because you're not living on the balance at all. You're just letting that ride and you're just living on the cash that's coming into the account. Yeah, that that's a really good one. And I think that resonates with people because, you know, based on where we're based, land is an investment lots of people have and they can almost look at this like their land. They're just going to collect the rent from the land and let the price do what it does. That's really what that strategy is. And the last one I want to hit on is the one that we subscribe to, and that's develop a well-tailored financial plan. You know, I, I have a great example of somebody I met with the other day. Her number one concern is, is my distribution sustainable? And it was 6%. Okay. So on paper, if you hear that, what's your first knee-jerk reaction? If I hear 6%? Yeah. I mean, it's I'm potentially too high, but potentially too high. I mean, we're yeah, but could probably make it work where we're at, especially let, with interest rates now. Let me tell you what she hasn't done. She'd never done a financial plan. She had no idea if this was going to work. So I said, well, why don't we take a look and just do a full plan and put this together, see what the outcome is. Right. And if you're taking six and then you go read an article or watch a video about 4% rule, then you're really going to wonder, oh, am I doing this wrong? Well, yeah, because you're spending 50% more than you're supposed to. But let me give yeah. you the backdrop. She's 64 years old. Not taking, she has a lower social security. She's she claiming her husband. Her husband passed away. So claiming on that, then hers is going to step up at age 70. Okay. Mm-hmm. So her distribution rate at 70 goes from six to 3.2. What we were able to do with the financial plan is go and schedule in all of her expenses. She wants to pay her house off, nervous to pay it off because she already thinks she's spending too much. Guess what we did? We modeled paying her house off. She knows her probability of success. She knows she's not outspending and she got her house paid off because we put a plan together versus using any rule or theory. If you have a plan, you can forget about the rules, the theory, and all of the other kind of stuff that comes with it. And that's why we subscribe to putting this together. It literally just gives you a better sense of financial direction, more financial confidence, and it helps you make the right decision versus saying, well, some guy wrote an article in 1994. I hope it still works. 
Right. And those, those rules and theories, I mean, they're not, they, they are relevant because everything should, everything should be taken into consideration. Right. And I know the 4% rule, it's, although it's not a rule we uh, subscribe to probably in practice, it is a good thing to understand what that means. Right. Cause then it gives you perspective on, okay, maybe that's not exactly what you're doing, but here's why this, what you're, you are doing works like the conversation you had where you could, you could prove that six per, 6% was not um, unsustainable for that person, but understanding there is a sustainable number. That's an important step. Well, the key anyone. was it was only 6% for a little while. And then it drops down. Right. And when but people that, hear that 4%, when people hear the 4% rule, they think they can never do more than four because it's a rule because it's a rule. Yeah. It's not it's a theory. doesn't mean you couldn't do more one year just, over the long term, it becomes less sustainable. But, you know, as we're talking about distribution strategies and financial plans, all the different options that are out there, one of the thing, things that go with financial planning is estate planning. And a lot of times it's overlooked. And I think because this week is a state planning week, let's cover some common estate planning misconceptions and beliefs that are out there and excuses why people actually don't go and complete this part of their financial plan, Elias. That is a good, yeah, this will be a good conversation. That's a good exercise too. And I think one of the, we have it listed as number one. It probably is a very common um, misconception or understanding with estate planning. And that is uh, I'm too young for estate planning. So let me hit the statistics. I think you skipped them, but 24% of people 18 to 34 actually have a will. 27% 27% from 25 to 54 have a will. So 25% of the people under 54 years old have a will. Wow. Why? And it, because it's, it's not thought of. And then it jumps up to 45% of people over 55. Because they think, well, oh, remember then, remember the episode we did where 53. You're, you're 53 when 53. you make the best decisions? That yeah. probably has something to do with it. No, too. you're probably right. They'd probably say, I'm 53. It's time to do this. So go ahead and hit that first one. I'm too young for estate planning. Yeah, and it's – I'll talk a little bit about, okay, what is estate planning? It kind of sounds like a fancy phrase, but it's really creating a clear and comprehensive plan for a transition of what ha- assets. Could be investment assets, house, bank account, just things that you have. And I think the – and these numbers here suggest a lot of people believe they're too young to do something like that. I mean, you might be young enough – that it's not very complicated, that, that, that doesn't mean it's not something prudent to do, right? Typically when you're young, you don't, one, you're not going to have a large estate. Two, there's not that many decisions to make, but I can just speak from the perspective of you're young, married, you have a young family. You might want to have a will that would outline who would take care of your kids if something were to happen to you and your spouse, because you're, your kids are going to, one, they're going to be too young to be in charge of whatever money you leave them or a house or whatever it may be. So they'll need trustees outlining uh, who who would manage the investment accounts if both parents weren't around and the kids got the money. So I think, you know, so being too young, that's probably not a real thing. It's, there is a need. It might not be the most complicated. And then from a practical perspective with estate planning, probably the first step is 
all of your accounts? Do they have up-to-date beneficiaries, right? Like, do you have 401k at work? When you got married, did you make your spouse the primary beneficiary or your mom and dad still the primary beneficiaries? Which that's probably a fairly common thing, right? You start working at 22, you're not married. So who who do you, who would you want to get this account if something happened to you? Well, that's easy, mom and dad, Yeah, right? So that's a good exercise. Um, and then as your family grows, making sure people are added in and stuff like that. So I don't, you know, being, being too young, um, Again, it just goes along with a common theme of our show. We talk about being an adult, making an ad- making adult decisions. That's part of it, understanding that and then and then doing it. The number two myth uh, about estate planning is it's just for the wealthy. And I, I think you hit on this, but estate planning has been referred to by tax people and attorneys, financial professionals, Hey, this is how we save on estate taxes. That's what people think about when they hear estate planning. Well, for the vast majority of the population in the United States, it's not it's irrelevant at this point. With where the uh, the state ex- ex- where the estate exemptions are, it's a little over 11 million a person. It's not really that relevant. But what estate planning does is like you mentioned, it helps make decisions for health care. Make sure your wishes are carried out in concert with your values and not those of others. Make sure that you don't unintentionally disinherit your kids. There's so many things that happen through estate planning that it's not just for the wealthy. That's misconception number two. Yeah, and um, that it's not. It's And there's also affordable ways, too, to do it, right? So you don't have to be wealthy to get some sort of documents drafted. And the the third thing we have on here is I need a lawyer to draft these documents. Now, I kind of want to qualify this. There are ways to do it yourself with drafting a will. I'm someone that believes the best way to do it would be to delegate that to a professional and make sure you're not open to doing it wrong. You want to, if you're going to take the time to do it, can you find someone that will put it together and charge you for it and it'll be done correctly? I think that is the way I would go. But if you're a big do-it-yourselfer and you want to save a little bit of money, there's actually a website called doyourownwill.com. I mean, how simple is that? Well, and there's other stuff, mydirectives.com, freewill.com, because we just said it's not for the wealthy. Some people don't have the means to go pay an attorney $500, $800. If you can't pay to have this done... You still can have a will. Yeah. Just go online. You can have your medical power of attorney, all your advanced directives. Go online and do it. It's better than nothing. But like you said, we would prefer that you have a professional do it. And that goes to number four. I don't need a lawyer at all. Well, maybe. But here's what I'll tell you. If it was me and it was meaningful to me, if I was doing this not just to go through the motions, I have an attorney review my documents and tell me what's good about it and what's not. It's kind of like a person who who's looking for financial help. Why are people engaging with us? They might've been doing it themselves, but now they want a second set of eyes for us to bring to light all the things that they're doing well, but also highlight the things where they could use improvement. And this is exactly what a lawyer attorney can do for you. Hey, here's my documents that I created on my own. What do you think? Make this change, this change, this change. Casey did it for one of my clients the other day. He did the same thing, did it online. Hey, I'm concerned that I, this isn't right. 
But they said, great, we'll have someone take a look at it. And they did. Was it right? I don't know. I'm not involved in that part. But I don't think it was vastly <laughs> wrong, but I think there may be some little tweaks that can be done. But it, it's just like investing. Why when somebody comes in here and does a financial plan, very rarely do we tell them everything you're doing is wrong. Usually. That's a, yeah, that's not that's not reality. Most people aren't doing everything wrong. Right. Yeah. Usually it's, hey, you're doing 90% of the stuff right. Let us tweak the other 10% and really get in line with the results of your plan. Or like we'll tell people, most people have, if you equate this to football, most people that are there have done the hard work. They're on like the 10-yard line. Let us punch it in the end zone for you. Yeah, that just, doesn't involve a flea flicker or reverse or anything fancy. Just run it up the middle. You know what it makes me think about? What? Don't say it. No, you're going to like this. So Marshawn Lynch has been all over my YouTube feed doing an interview with Shannon Sharp. And, and he's still talking about that Super Bowl player. Yeah. One yard line, first and goal from the one. All they got to do is punch it in. They call a pass play, gets picked off. Marshawn Lynch is like, I was still trying to process what was happening. And Shannon Sharp's like, you got Marshawn Lynch, 220 pounds of a truck running downhill, and you don't hand it off four times? Yeah, it's got to be one of the worst play calls and it's also one of the greatest plays ever made by an individual. So here's interesting, because I only watch bits and pieces of the the podcast, because my attention span's not that long for it. What I want to know, because what I gathered from more of that episode that they had is Russell Wilson was kind of a little bit of an egomaniac. Did Pete Carroll actually call the pass play, or did Russell Wilson call it in, in the, in the uh, huddle? Because... Marshawn Lynch said he was looking around and everybody in the huddle's like, what's happening here? Yeah, I'm almost surprised they didn't just call their own play. Well, maybe Russell Wilson did call his own play I don't <laughs> for know. himself to throw a touchdown pass. Don't know. Elias, number five, I'm going to let you answer this, but I get this asked all the time. If I pass away without a will, the state will get my assets. So here, here's what – so here's what happens – each state has um, their applicable laws or laws of intestacy to determine who will get what. So I think there should be a way for, depending on where you live, to see if you don't have a will, and you even as simple as don't have a will, we have children, who would be responsible for them? Um, but each state will have outlines of how they would handle it and who would get what. Just a blanket statement like, oh, my stuff just goes to the state. That's not true. There's going to be some next of kin. There's an order of operations for how it's determined on uh, on who's going to get that. And there's actually some resources. There's a website called Airbase to see what that outcome could possibly look like. So this is something where if you're listening and you're thinking, you know, I do want to understand this, that's a good place to start. It'll outline kind of how things would be treated. And then if you view that and you think, I want it different, you know, then it's time to look at um, maybe getting a will in place. And then the, I would say even before that, just check your beneficiaries, check, check your transfer on desk with the bank. Make sure those things are at least in line the way you want them. Um, and, then go, and then go from there. But I think that's a good resource to at least understand how your stuff's going to be treated if something happens to you. 
I think the number one reason outside of where your assets go, if you have children to have a will, is where do your kids go? That's an important thing. My wife, the number one reason to update our will had nothing to do with money. Yeah, it's who it only had who's going to take care of the kids because if you don't have a will and tell everybody in this will where you want your assets, where you want your kids to go. You just get, called your kids assets. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Can they, maybe they'll be my retirement plan someday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. I'm just kidding. I, I know. It's all good. But if you want the state to determine where your kids go when you pass away. Don't get a will. If you want to decide, you should get a will. Because that's ultimately what happens if you don't have one. The state will decide who the guardian of your kids are. Yeah, and to me, that's, at least for our family, that was the most important reason to do that. We wanted that. We wanted everyone in the family to know what our wishes would be and how that would work and if there is any flexibility in that and there is but that's all outlined and a professional helped us outline that so right so that's something we can feel good about um what's the next one here six misconception six if i have a will i don't have to worry about probate and that's wishful thinking but at the end of the day probate is just settling you know with creditors and making sure everything settles out and it can be long expensive typically it's like nine months if you have property in more than one state you have to do probate in more than one state just because you have a will does not mean you're going to avoid probate. So while it provides the court with guidance as to what you want to have happen, it does not avoid the actual probate process altogether. That's an entirely different world to kind of get to avoid or try to avoid some level of probate. Yeah, and, and along those same lines, another myth is to avoid probate, you have to draft a trust. Um. You don't necessarily need that. I know a lot of times we guide people. One of the the simplest thing is your beneficiaries and how they're listed. Now there could be there could be an argument for a trust for a family to have, and again, that's best determined through working with a professional. But again, it's one of those things. Do you have to have a trust in place to avoid probate? No, you don't. Um, well, does a trust play a part in an estate plan, depending on what you have and how you want that directed? Yes, it absolutely can, but it's not a, just like these other things. Does a will mean I avoid probate? If I have a trust, can I, it's not just one, you know, there's no, there's not one silver bullet involved in this. There, there's, there's multiple things you really need to consider when, when you're kind of seeking this advice and establishing what you should do and, and how you should do it. That leads into number eight. Trusts are there to avoid estate tax. And that's not true. Trusts are not developed to avoid estate tax. They may help if you structure it properly, but that's someone where you're going to want to seek qualified legal advice to do that. But there are certain trusts that can be used as part of a strategy to eliminate estate tax liability. But once again, with where the limits are for very few people, it's important Trusts are more about the titling of property and what's going to happen happen in them. Going into number nine, I don't have enough money to worry about a state tax, Elias. You know, that, that potentially, there's some changes coming with that. Right now, the, the threshold is more than double what it's going to move to after 2025, because I believe that was part of the um, 2017 Tax and Job Cuts Act where they increased 
that limits. And then if you're, well, individually, and then if you're married, it basically combines those, but that's, that's scheduled to go down to five. So what's not in, that's scheduled to go down to 5 million. So anything in your estate over 5 million potentially will be subject to the 40% estate tax. And that's 5 million per person. And it's actually indexed for inflation. So it'll actually be closer to 6 million per person. And that's 2026. In 26? Yeah, 26. Right. But it all, but ultimately it brings more people into that because they're lowering the overall. And it's where trust strategies come into into effect because if each person gets a $6 million lifetime exclusion, you want to make sure you get that for both of your husband and wife, right? If one person dies, wouldn't you want it to be 12 for your family? So there's ways to do that. You don't want to lose 6 million because you didn't do this right. So it's why if you guys have significant assets, I'd say if someone has more than 5 million, this is where you need to start looking into what are some of the strategies we can do to potentially eliminate this. And we don't know for sure if it's going back. Well, actually, yes, it is, unless the Tax Cut and Jobs Act gets extended, which I would say that's unlikely to happen based upon what's happening in, in um, Washington right now. And then the last one, and I get this one a lot, I'll have to pay a gift tax if I give somebody over 17000 per year. And that's actually wrong. So in 2023, you can gift up to 17,000 per person per beneficiary without reducing your lifetime gift or your lifetime uh, estate tax exclusion. I got an example. I have a client who called up, Roger, we want to give our daughter 150,000 to buy a place, buy a house. What's the tax implication? There is none because they'll just reduce, they file a tax form it reduces their annulus or their lifetime estate tax exclusion from right now 11 million to 10 million 850,000 that's all it really did it just reduced the amount that they can do over their lifetime so if you want to give a larger gift because you know you want to be charitable or your kids need some help there's ways to do it without any adverse tax consequences once again best thing to do if you're looking to do it contact the contact a qualified CPA or tax person that you trust to help and make sure you don't do it incorrectly. You know, I had that situation. They use my CPA. So I just said, Hey, let's call the CPA, make sure we're doing this in concert correctly. So you don't have any adverse tax consequences. And we did, and it was amicable and easy and no big deal. But a lot of people get, you know, concerned that they're going to cause an adverse tax consequence by giving somebody more money than they should. Yeah. And there's real, and if you're, you know, if you're working with professionals, that's just the fact that, you know, it's going to be done right. Like that's so valuable that if you ask that question, right, you don't just asking that question means there's some level of just not understanding how it works. Like, especially at a general level, well then you can outsource that to experts and just make sure it's done right and know that you made a very good decision. The legal world is the one place I don't think you should take a shortcut. Really? Yeah, probably. Of all That's the things probably good advice. Right all there, the things you're going to try to save money on, you're going to try to do this yourself? The most complicated like, yeah, stuff out there, like, I'll do it myself. You know, I'm, I'm a banker, but I'll do this myself. Why? Just go get qualified advice. If anybody needs referral or help from us, you can go to btwellshow.com. We have several people we can get you in touch with to kind of help answer your questions if that's of concern. With that said, Elias, great show again. Happy to have you back. And uh, until next time, I want to thank everybody for listening. 
Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.